Uh, good morning, everyone. And uh, my name is Tony Wood. I'm a partner in the employment team here at uh, Herbert Smith Freehills, Melbourne. Although uh, this webinar today is uh, going out live across Australia, but it will also be recorded and it will be placed on the Herbert Smith uh, Freehills uh, web um, as of uh, tomorrow, Friday. So uh, I, I hope if, it, if you're not watching this live this morning, then uh, you'll have the opportunity to listen to it as a uh, podcast later on. The um, focus of our webinar this morning is to deal with the uh, sexual harassment uh, at the workplace report, which was just recently handed down by the Australian Federal Sex Discrimination uh, Commissioner, Kate Jenkins, uh, a former partner of mine here at Herbert Smith Freehills. And, uh, and uh, Kate's uh, report went to many, many hundreds of pages. And hopefully today we can demystify the report somewhat, uh, give you some clarity on what some of the key recommendations are and perhaps some key learnings and outputs that employers may be able to, uh, uh, to implement to uh, remain or, or put themselves ahead of the game in this really uh, complex area. Uh, before we get into things, a couple of housekeeping matters. Uh, the session today will be lasting for hopefully just over one hour and we will be taking some questions. So if any uh, of the attendees in this session would like to uh, uh, take that opportunity, there'll be the opportunity on your screens uh, to send questions. And one of my colleagues, Lucy Boyd, uh, will be moderating those and hopefully uh, we can address those as we go on during the course of the morning or at least uh, in any event towards the end of the session. Uh, I'd like to briefly introduce uh, the panel. Hopefully you are able to see them on your screens this morning. Um, in front of me um, uh, uh, directly is, uh, first of all, Lucy Boyd, who is a senior associate in the Melbourne team of Herbert Smith Freehills. And Lucy will be talking about some a key summary of the elements of the report, and also maybe a little bit of Lucy's experience with her Me Too litigation in the London office of uh, Herbert Smith Freehills. So Lucy, welcome. Um, we also have with us uh, an alum, actually two alumni of, uh, of our firm in, in Melbourne. Um, firstly, Tamsin Lawrence, who's a Deputy Director of the Australian Chamber of Commerce and Industry, and Aki participated uh, both in the report, and I know that Tamsin, uh, on behalf of her organisation, uh, we'll have a number of views that she will put. So welcome, Tamsin. Uh, the other alumni, alumni, Catherine Dixon, one of my great friends, who is the Executive Director of the Victorian Equal Opportunity and Human Rights Commission. And uh, I'm particularly interested in hearing from Catherine because one of the elements of the uh, proposed changes uh, to the federal system is the introduction of a positive duty, perhaps in some respects more akin uh, to the obligations that employers have in relation to workplace health and safety. We had that already in Victoria. So Catherine, question on notice, I'd be interested to hear about how you think Victoria might be traveling and tracking in that space compared to the rest of the country. Um, and, and last but certainly not least, um, Heather Price. Heather is uh, the CEO of Symmetra, uh, a global organization conducting uh, training and advice uh, and consulting services in relation to gender and diversity issues. Um, Heather, in fact, is a consultant to our own firm, Herbert Smith Freehills, and a number of uh, clients of ours. So welcome, Heather, and uh, your perspective, again, will be really uh, uh, interesting to hear as we go through. But uh, first of all, I'd like to um, turn to you, Lucy, if you can, and I wonder if you can give us a quick overview of some of the key elements of the, uh, the report um, that was conducted um, by, uh, by the Commissioner. Absolutely. Thanks, Tony. Um, now I'll just share my screen. Got it. Great, that's showing. Awesome. Perfect. Now, so uh, the report was launched back in 5th of March of this year. It feels like a very long time ago now, the pre-COVID days. Um, it was a culmination of an 18-month inquiry led by Kate Jenkins, um, the Sex Discrimination Commissioner. And 
it, it was it's a very comprehensive and incredibly detailed report. It runs to over 900 pages and involved the collection of a significant amount of evidence, including 10,000 people surveyed, 460 submissions and 60 public consultations. Now, what the report, the, 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 as I think many of us anticipated, the findings of the report were quite shocking. Um, it found that sexual harassment is a common experience. Um, in 2018, it, it found that one in three Australian workers had experienced sexual harassment in the last five years. It found that sexual harassment happens in all workplaces and every industry. However, it's most prevalent in male-dominated hierarchical um, workplaces and where workers are exposed to a high degree of contact with third parties, such as the hospitality industry. The report found that the onus has been on victims to complain. And I think that in the executive summary, Kate summed it up as that our current system is simply not fit for purpose. Um, it, it found that only 17% of people who'd experienced workplace sexual harassment had actually made a complaint. And lastly, it found that sexual harassment um, comes with a, a high cost to the Australian economy. There was a, a study carried out by Deloitte which found the annual cost uh, to our economy uh, of sexual harassment is $3.8 billion. Um, so some, some really shocking um, uh, problems have been identified and, and, and it's clear from the report that our progress um, in uh, eliminating sexual harassment has been um, disappointingly slow. Uh, so what was the upshot of this? Well, the report made 55 recommendations um, and they sort of fell within uh, five key areas um, of a new approach for tackling sexual harassment in the workplace. Uh, a lot of the uh, recommendations uh, were based on our current legal and regulatory system, um, which involved amendments to the Sex Discrimination um, Act, including most prominently uh, a proposal to introduce a federal positive duty to prevent sexual harassment. Amendments were suggested to our fair work system, including the introduction of a new jurisdiction uh, uh, for stop sexual harassment orders. Um, and there's also some commentary on sexual harassment as a work health and safety issue. So refocusing those existing laws on treating sexual harassment as, as a safety issue. In addition to this, the report contains some more holistic recommendations, uh, which are aimed at uh, education for the public, uh, board education and training, external reporting for public companies and also industry initiatives. Uh, now, we've had the report uh, since March of this year and uh, we're, we're still waiting on the government response and I'm sure many of you have tuned into Kate's uh, recent webinars and it, Kate has made it clear in those webinars that Unfortunately, the impact of COVID means that the government response will be delayed. But she's also emphasised that the employers should not be waiting necessarily for the government response. The report contains many learnings for employers and it still can be used now um, for employers to, to move to that best practice model. Uh, and I know that our panel today will be discussing ways and sharing the insights on how employers can improve their systems and move towards best practice. Hey, uh, Lucy, thank you for the summary. I'll come back to you a little bit later, but um, actually, while I have you now, one of the issues you didn't touch upon on the summary, although it kind of got some fleeting reference in the uh, in the report, was the uh, I think the issue of uh, the use of non-disclosure agreements or NDAs and for, for people like me who have been, you know, following this issue for the last few years and have been absolutely enthralled by uh, Ronan Farrow's uh, Catch and Kill and and the, uh, the the podcast series and obviously even even more recently the uh, the incidents regarding Michael Bloomberg and the fact that he and his organisation in the US uh, were prepared to waive the use of NDAs entirely, and it's creating some momentum in that space. But notwithstanding that, most of our clients um, use them, and, and if there is a settlement or a complaint, 
uh, and often that arises through a well almost invariably through a mutual interest of the the complainant and and the respondent um, what does the report say about the use of ndas yes yeah, so it is absolutely a global hot topic and when the the recommendation in the report is perhaps compared to approaches taken in the us and in the uk um, it, it seems sort of relatively benign in contrast so the, recommend, the report took quite a balanced view on the issue and recognised the benefit to both parties of re reaching a, a mutual settlement and avoiding costly and protect, protected, protected legislation, uh, sorry, litigation. Um, so the, the actual recommendation was for a, a practice guide to be put together um, around best practice for NDAs in sexual harassment cases. Um, this is in contrast to jurisdictions such as New York and California, where uh, they're moving towards banning um, NDAs in sexual harassment cases. And in the UK, a slightly uh, more balanced approach of introducing carve-outs into, uh, into NDAs in sexual harassment cases, which make it clear to individuals that they're still able to disclose um, these matters to medical profession, uh, professionals or their lawyer or a therapist. So um, our approach falls, you know, somewhere in between those. I think it's really valuable that it, it recognises the benefit of um, NDAs for, for both parties. Um, but I think uh, time will tell whether this turns into legislative reform once the issue's been considered further. Thanks. Um, thanks, Lucina. I think in, in relation to reform, we're, we're, I think COVID has slowed, you know, everything down legislatively, uh, except you know, urgent, urgent matters. Um, and I, I want to turn in a, in a moment to Tamsin, but just while I'm talking about COVID, and uh, Catherine, I told you I'd surprise you with a question without notice. But you're at the you're at the, the coalface in the sense at the moment um, at, at the Victorian Commission, which I imagine is similar to all of the other state commissions that are dealing with complaints and and uh, uh, and harassment that might be occurring. Are you seeing a spike in claims now uh, during kind of the COVID crisis? What, what, what impact are you seeing at the uh, uh, coalface? Well, thanks for the question, Tony. Yes, COVID's changed things really significantly. What we're seeing through our inquiries and our complaints processes are an increase in racism um, reports, particularly people from different uh, Asian backgrounds and these kinds of vilification issues that are occurring in supermarkets, on public transport, um, out in the public, between neighbours, it's pretty disappointing. But we're dealing with that issue and it, for us it's meant we've been much more proactive in trying to translate information um, about people's rights and that they can come to us to make complaints. So that's been one area. In terms of gender equality, we've been really trying to uh, keep a, a really close eye on gender issues really to make sure some of the gains that have been made in gender don't go backwards during COVID because I guess a lot of the impact of COVID is um, being experienced by women, for example, um, if they're trying to seek more flexibility because they've got to look after kids that are no longer at school, for example, uh, employers may not be as receptive uh, to that given their own pressures. So those kinds of issues we're seeing uh, playing out uh, definitely. And I suppose we're looking also at a range of issues around how police are using their discretion during this time um, because there's a lot of restrictions on people's freedoms. And so, and, and obviously there's a lot happening in the justice space with, with corrections uh, and with courts. And so we're sort of monitoring that as well. Um, you should go to our um, our hub, our COVID hub, for more information. Um, it's interesting, though, the traditional um, association of sexual harassment at work um, occurs through the uh, uh, the conglomeration of people, and uh, you know, through social events, quite typically, unfortunately, uh, and and just you know. Un unfortunate comments, to say the least, towards people. So people are congregating less at work, but are we still seeing more cyber uh, harassment cases happening? That's that's right. So what we're keeping an eye on is the potential for um, sexual harassment to occur uh, online uh, and in, in, in 
different forms. Um, it, it already occurs online, but if there's, I suppose we're all working remotely a lot more now, we're all using uh, remote technology. And so I think there's the real risk that we'll see an increase in sexual harassment through those, those technologies. Thanks. Uh, thanks. I'll come back to you later, Catherine. Um, I wanted to though go back um, on the issues of the report and Tamsin. Um, mm. Aki, Aki was involved as uh, obviously a contributor into uh, giving their views for, for business. A couple of questions. First of all, um, are, are there any things um, that, that, that you were disappointed about in the report or are there any areas that you think can be improved as a consequence of the report? Yeah, sure. Uh, I think for us, um, it was a bit of a, a bit of a hit and miss for us. This report, I think, on on some things, we were really pleased to see what came out. For example, um, NDAs. We really think that uh, the public discourse on those had been misunderstood a little bit. The complex nature of a sexual harassment um, matters, and that there are various parties involved, and often um, it is on uh, the person who might actually be the victim who might have a, a strong desire to keep those matters um, and private, so that you know their colleagues don't find out, or their family, or or whatever, and that we think that um, that if we had gone down the path of of some of the states like New York or um, some of the things that have been mentioned um, coming out of the UK, that would really have been to the detriment of every party involved. So um, we we're pretty glad that that came out, and and also the the recommendations around things like further education and training. It's very clear to us that that out there in the real world, there's a real disconnect between an understanding of what actually sexual harassment is. I think most um, people out there have this connotation that it's somehow linked to actually, you know, touching or, or assaulting someone. Um, and overwhelmingly, um, the feedback in, in the data that comes back is that, that the most prevalent form of sexual harassment is actually inappropriate sexual jokes or comments. And so making the, the public understand that that in itself is sexual harassment, we think is something that's very important because um, there was actually a, a survey done of women in 2017 that said you know, a third of women actually thought that, that there's no problem with those kind of jokes and so aren't taking action where, where they otherwise might um, need to. So for us, that's really important. We think that the industry-wide initiatives that were suggested were another great um, recommendation as we've seen success through some of our members, particularly in the live performance industry, which in particular has had a a serious issue with um with this problem. So we were glad to see that that was picked up. But um, for us, probably the biggest miss was on the unfair dismissal side of things. We were glad to see um, that they talked about the definition of serious misconduct, you know, finally recognising se sexual harassment as something that will be called out there. But, um, but we're still seeing, uh, sadly for us, too many cases that are just going against the pub test. And, and we really hoped that, that the level of discretion that is currently afforded to commissioners in instances of sexual harassment would be reined in a little bit more. Um, particularly, we were keen to see um, that reinstatement would no longer be the primary remedy in instances where sexual harassment was found to have occurred in the workplace. Um, because we know there's been numerous cases. In fact, um, for me, Tony, BHP is, is the standout recently. They, um, they're clearly, you know, a male-dominated industry that's seeking to take action um, and seeking to stamp out behaviour in their workplace. And unfortunately, what we've seen is two recent cases, um, the most recent only in March this year, uh, where we had a, a worker who um, made some pretty outrageous sexually explicit comments um, regarding the performance of a, of a sexual act towards another staff member. And when BHP took action against that, um, they were found that it wasn't a valid reason for dismissal. In fact, the commissioner said that the women involved were prudish and that she could see how people would have found the comments to be funny. Um, and so th this kind of flies in the face of employers trying to take action. It kind of says to them, you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. Um, and BHB had another similar case early, uh, late last year involving um, a sexually explicit item of which a, a staff member thought it would be funny to tape a, uh, a piece of cutlery to that when they went through the scanner at an airport. Um, and again, BHP took action, said not appropriate. And the commission said, oh, no, actually, that wasn't unreasonable in the circumstances. That was, sorry, that was unreasonable in the circumstances. And so that person was awarded $6,000 in compensation. And I think um, for the big end of town who are doing a very good job at this, um, uh, when they have these kind of decisions against them, that the ripple effect through through the medium and small people who are in that supply chain is huge. And we would have loved to have seen um, a bit more action taken in that respect to, to give business owners, um, particularly the smaller end, the confidence to to take action. Because as we know, in the unfair dismissal space, it's an action a space where we see too much go away money. Um, and we'd hope that that would particularly stop in the sexual harassment space so that people knew that they couldn't get away with this kind of behaviour. 
Hey, look, I mean, I think that's a really good call out. I mean, I, I mean, I don't want to use this session to bash the Fair Work Commission, but there have been uh, a, a number of. Oh, why not? We may as well. No, um, the, the, the cases. Like, there was a Mount Arthur Cole decision that you might yeah. recall from three, four years ago, and, and, and I remember Commissioner uh, Johns gave a, gave I what I thought was a you know terrifically brave dissent. Uh, when he called out the uh, kind of the vile homophobic and is Islamophobic comments that a truck driver made um, in the course of his job. And the commission, you know, on appeal, um, upheld the comments and held that, or they weren't really, you know, intended to be broadcast to the world, notwithstanding that they were. So I think that that context of the, the recommendation to get a much clearer um, definition that sexual harassment is a valid reason, not only for termination, but also as serious misconduct, will we'll probably not change them so much, but it might actually have an impact on, on perception, which is, which, is, which is, I think, such a vital uh, uh, area. And, and kind of, it gives me a chance now to bring you in, Heather, to this conversation, because the instances that Tamsin just reflected on um, which are, you know, conduct that occurs in the workplace. You know, the comments, you know, not necessarily the, um, uh, e even the gross examples of, of, you know, sexual assault or, or, or unwarranted touching, but it's just the pervasive um, comments towards uh, women uh, primarily. Why is that happening? And is, how is the report going to make a change to any of those elements? Well, the reality, Tony, is that some leaders and organisations are going to willingly embrace this idea of a more positive duty as an opportunity to create more respectful cultures and make it work. Because we have many of these leaders and organisations already talking to us at Symmetra, and they recognise that the Me Too movement has made the, visible, the invisible visible, that it's broken the code of silence, that powerful men are no longer immune and there's no going back. However, there are plenty of organisations that are still reluctant to accept that it's part of their inherent obligation to keep employees safe from harassment. And so we will need the changes to the legislation recommended by the Commission in place to enforce compliance, compulsory reporting, powers of investigation, and penalties for flagrant non-compliance. Um, I think that what will make the difference will be those organisations who will assume that positive duty and take that holistic approach that's being recommended and is encouraging to see that there are quite a lot of organisations who are starting to discuss this. And it really entails building a culture of trust and respect. We know that workplaces which have a hierarchical structure, that are command and control, that are testosterone infused, dominated by a boys club dynamic, where disrespectful behaviour is tolerated or ignored, where it's considered risky or even disloyal to complain, where the culture of the organisation permits and forgives such bad behaviour with, with quick cosmetic fixes rather than punishing it, those are the workplaces where sexual harassment is likely to be more common. Simply speaking, harassment begets harassment. So the solution is to transform our workplaces into ones which are inclusive. Now, an inclusive workplace is one characterised by respect, and a recognition that it's unacceptable to undermine people's dignity or feeling of worth, whether it's conscious or unconscious. It is a workplace which values difference, where difference doesn't make some people feel more vulnerable and prime targets of exploitation. It's a workplace free of bias, and it's a workplace where it's psychologically safe to speak up, even if this exposes uncomfortable facts. So what you want is victims as well as bystanders feeling confident in bringing inappropriate behaviour to light. And to embed such an inclusive culture, it all comes down to leadership. If leaders take it seriously, so does everyone. So what do we need to do to create such a culture? What are some of those practical steps that organisations can take? Well, organisations and leaders need to build leadership capability to role model inclusive behaviour. They need to make it clear how mild, more subtle forms of gender-based offences you've just been referring to, Tamsin right across the spectrum to this more serious forms of sexual misconduct, all contribute to creating a disrespectful, unsafe, unfair culture, which leads to the real problems. We need to make inclusion a KPI on the balanced scorecard of leaders. We need to set expectations that inclusive leaders, amongst other things, 
actively and visibly speak out about sexual harassment when it occurs, call it out as a problem to tackle, because saying nothing is certainly not good enough, apply real consequences with people being disciplined or losing their jobs, and provide real protection to the people to prevent victimization. And we need to measure how inclusive leaders actually are. Year on year, we need to measure with rigorous inclusion assessment tools, not ask two or three vanilla questions in an engagement survey, and then close the skills and attitudinal gaps identified by those assessments when and where they're identified. And then, of course, at the same time as all of this, we need to even out the power imbalances between men and women, because at its core, sexual harassment is about unequal power relations at work and, of course, in society at large. When people in positions of power exercise domination over their subordinates through acts of sexual harassment, they are communicating to the victim that they are subject to their whims and desires. And since men still occupy by far the greatest number of positions of power, they are most usually the perpetrators, though not exclusively. So organizations have to work hard at achieving gender balance in leadership and in core roles. And in this way, they'll reduce the perception that certain jobs are a man's domain thus reducing the power threat effect. The fact of the matter is that I feel that diversity and inclusion efforts, gender equity initiatives, and efforts to combat sexual harassment should not run disparate parallel paths in organizations. I often have people driving those initiatives saying to me, well, this is DNR, that's just compliance. You know, we are, we are dealing with separate things. No, they should rather converge, they should collaborate, they should work together to achieve the common goal of creating respectful, fair, and inclusive workplaces. And I don't know if there's time for me to carry on, but there's one point that I haven't mentioned, and that's the training, because I, I feel this is a really, really important issue. You know, the report, report talks about knowledge and the need to develop an understanding of ex expected workplace behaviors across the board, and Tamsin, you made reference to that in the community at large. The fact of the matter is that we know that the traditional approach to training, which has been used to provide that knowledge, has not worked. That the mandatory forbidden curriculum training, which tells you what you should and shouldn't do and can and can't do, has not only failed, according to large research studies done across the globe, but they actually are counterproductive. That kind of training sometimes creates feelings of defensiveness in the people who might be the potential source of the problem and do not want to be part of the solution. What is recommended is to move away from pure compliance training towards training that also embraces bystander intervention, because this approach embraces men as part of the solution to the problem, rather than just treating them as perpetrators in waiting. And this costs the duty on everybody to call out the bad behavior or to intervene when they see a potential problem arising. Hey. Look, Heather, uh, and I want to come to you in a minute, Catherine, to talk about, a little bit about the positive duty that you have in Victoria. But, Heather, um, we'll have people listening to this, and they will have um, either a cover-by-numbers CEO or uh, maybe a CEO who doesn't even, you know, accept that, maybe a board as well, that don't understand the, you know, the, the benefits that might uh, accrue from from you know, taking a much more uh, positive role in this space. So what does the HR director, whose job might be to head up you know, diversity, inclusion, um, policies, um, culture, and, and they've, they've got either a benign or potentially a, a, a non-believer at the senior executive level, now, what, what steps should they be doing? Yeah, how do how do they actually crack through? How do they how do they make a difference with with with, with that lacking leadership, if you like, in that space? The unfortunate reality is they have to get executive engagement. They have to get full executive engagement and the leadership of the organisation to put their weight behind this, because they simply won't get traction unless they do. And there are a number of steps they could take, you know, to try and get that. First of all. Um, my experience and the experience of everyone in the Symmetra team shows you don't have a uniform attitude. So you might have a CEO or some individuals who are in positions of power who really only just colour by numbers. But today you're likely to find in organisations a fairly solid number of people in leadership levels who really want to respond to this concept of a holistic approach and who want to establish 
I think there's, you know, equal camps on both sides. And so I, my advice to those HR directors is start lobbying, start finding out, start having the conversations with your leaders to see if you can develop a group that will help you lobby for this to get your executive engagement. I think the second thing is that that HR director needs to get rigorous data. You need to get, you need to do the assessments. You, and that doesn't just mean collecting the data on how many incidents of reporting, because we know what 17% in the report, we know how low that is. It means get data which really demonstrates how respectful, how inclusive the culture is, and use that data as the burning platform to say this is a, you know, it's all on a continuum. And if we are condoning this kind of behavior, even if it's not at the point of sexual assault, all this other kind of behavior is going to lead to that. It's simply on a continuum. So I'd say get the data and take a more broad-based approach, lobby and find those who support you, and then approach and start working on getting executive engagement. You know, um, we could equally be talking, I mean, we're talking about sexual harassment. We could equally be talking about a, uh, you know, a bullying uh, culture, if you like, in the workplace. There, there, there's a, a high degree of synergy in that space. And there, there's always been this um, unwritten rule that the, in a professional service firm, for instance, the rainmaker is immune. Um, or, or in, 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 in business, you know, the successful leader, uh, maybe even a successful command and control leader is immune because uh, he or she is delivering, you know, the, the output uh, and, and uh, delivering the uh, shareholders' demand. So, you know, how, how, do, you, how do you overcome that, that intransigence, which is obviously that, 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 yes, we have a policy, yes, we have a practice, but, but some people are excluded from that. Is, is that feasible? How can, how can that operate? I think where high-value leaders or rainmakers, as you've described them, are seen to be untouchable, such that if a complaint is made, the organisation is going to align itself with a high-value leader rather than the victim, and just use HR to meet out quick cosmetic fixes that will make the problem go away as quickly and quietly as possible with minimal disruption to the business, is, is fundamentally a huge problem because all of this comes down to leadership. If leaders take it seriously, so does everyone else. And so the worst behavior is that behavior which suggests that certain leaders are untouchable. And so again, that's why you need the executive engagement at the top, because you can need an executive decision that no one in the organization will be untouchable. And in those few instances where organizations, and this may be close to home for you, have taken a firm stand on a rainmaker, you know, who has behaved inappropriately and actually dismiss that individual, it sends a very powerful message to the rest of the organization that this is not a permissive culture that will permit this behavior to continue. This behavior, no matter who it's enacted by, will lead to some form of punishment. It will not be tolerated. It will not be swept under the carpet. Hey, I'm going to go rogue a bit uh, because um, I, I have this great example um, that, that in a, in a matter where I advised a client a, a couple of years ago, and um, I only say this for shock value rather than uh, I may, maybe anything substantive arising from it. But um, the example was that uh, a relatively small business, but a client of ours, um, had uh, an incident at their Christmas party where uh, a director of the company, so not a full-time employee, but a director, attended the party, um, got you know, inebriated and made um, some some really uh, unfortunate, at the very least, um, comments to one of the young uh, but quite senior female managers in the business. And after his uh, approaches towards her, and to the extent it's relevant, he was a married man, um, uh, she wrote a letter to the CEO um, uh, and copied it to the director. And the letter said, um, I've had time to process what happened on Wednesday night. Um, I didn't have the courage at the time to tell you that what you did and what you said to me um, were inappropriate. Um, I didn't also have the courage at the time um, to tell you that your sexual advances and your comments to me that, quote, you're a really hot girl and, you know, you're so sexy and so on. But I'm telling you now in this email, and went on to say the use of intimidation and manipulation and abuse of power was unacceptable and so on. So she put all that in writing. The CEO got 
receive that and uh, appropriately uh, investigated the conduct. She, by the way, resigned and said, I can't work under these circumstances. He said, I don't want to accept your resignation. I want to look into this. Will you allow me to do it? And she said, well, okay, and they did. And uh, uh, an investigation was commenced and the director, um, surprise, surprise, engaged lawyers. And uh, the lawyers uh, ultimately wrote a letter uh, to us um, uh, in relation to the, uh, the conduct of the CEO in commencing the investigation. And the law firm um, is a very well-known law firm. I won't name it. Um, but it's a, it's a very well-known law firm, uh, and, and clearly they were writing their letter on instructions. Um, but they wrote the, these words. Um, regrettably, um, the CEO appears to act, have acted ultra vires to his role as CEO. Well, well, I'm not sure what they meant by that. Um, in any event, his handling of the situation has placed um, the director and the company in a difficult position. Were he truly acting in everyone's interests, he would have accepted the employee's comments that she was fine and accepted her resignation and allowed the matter to end at that point. And um, subsequently, of course, the matter was resolved. There was uh, a financial settlement. Um, the director undertook not to return to the workplace. But six months later, the CEO had less, left the job. And the director had returned um, to the workplace on a regular basis. So look, that's mainly just the salaciousness. But uh, maybe turning to you, Catherine, um, in Victoria, we do have a positive duty. And one of the, one of the uh, recommendations in uh, the commissioner's report is that they introduce a, a positive duty on employers to, uh, to prevent uh, uh, sexual harassment or discrimination generally in the workplace. So I'm interested to hear from you. You can comment on that example if you like, um, because of course that happened when there was a positive duty in Victoria. Um, but this positive duty has existed for a while in Victoria and being a devil's advocate, I haven't seen different outcomes necessarily in this state than I have from my clients in, in New South Wales or in Queensland. So what do you say about that positive duty and what impact is it going to have on employers? Oh, thanks, Tony. Um, I should actually start by acknowledging the traditional owners, actually, on the country that I'm sitting on today. It's the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations. I'm, apologies for forgetting to do that earlier on. Um, yes, we do have a positive duty in Victoria in the Equal Opportunity Act, and it's a broad duty to eliminate sexual harassment and discrimination and victimisation. And it really does put our legislation, I think, at the forefront, and it is certainly the model that the Sex Discrimination Commissioner has used, I think, to, um, to model a federal duty, uh, although it's broader than just sex discrimination. And it's, it's a really, really important provision in our legislation. It's certainly the prism through which we at the Commission conduct all our work from dispute resolution through to education, uh, through to the deeper cultural work that we do with organisations through the consultancy around diversity and inclusion plans generally. One of the things I will say is that the Federal Commissioner recommended that you do have to have really strong and effective enforcement mechanisms when it comes to a positive duty. And we've been saying for some time in Victoria that we do think we need stronger enforcement mechanisms. So we work really well with employers uh, who want to, to work with us and who want to make the changes uh, and focus on prevention, and uh, that's that's been very productive. Uh, but for those employers who are unaware of the duty or, in fact, um, may be slow to coming to uh, realising the benefits of a prevention approach, there's really not much of a stick or an incentive from that point of view uh, on employers to sort of take notice. So we can investigate systemic issues, but it's a very high threshold for us to do that. And we also, we can produce a report that, that has recommendations, but we're, we're not able to go in and issue compliance notices. There's really no penalties for a failure to comply other than reputational damage. And so, you know, I think we're ahead of the game in Victoria, but it could be better through stronger enforcement 
mechanisms. Um, but I will say that I often wonder whether the fact that we've got a gender equality strategy in this in this state at a at a state government level, the fact that we've just introduced a new gender equality act that applies to public sector uh, bodies, which really will make them report um, on gender equality indicators. I do wonder sometimes whether we would have that kind of progressive legislation if we didn't have a really strong Equal Opportunity Act with a strong positive duty that is all about preventing uh, sexual harassment from occurring, which, as Heather said, is really about understanding quite deeply the causes of sexual harassment, and which are mostly gender inequality causes and, and other intersectional discrimination causes, and doing something about it at the front end. Um, so I think I think employers in Victoria are ahead of the game, actually. Sorry, I knew I'd fall for that problem about unmuting myself. Credit where it's due um, to Daniel Andrews. You know, when when he uh, uh, commenced as as premier, I mean, the steps he took to uh, to implement uh, gender parity on government boards, for instance, was you know. You talk about role models. I think that was an incredible um, uh, step, and you know, for him to say so publicly at the time that he was sick of attending meetings where uh, there were no women. Um, I think that that's a point that Heather makes as well, as well about having role models. Hey, look, um, can, Tamsin, can I get you to comment on this question of the positive duty? And and uh, yeah, a lot of commentators have aligned uh, the proposal to. Uh, the uh, the status of uh, workplace health and safety laws, which of course uh, are placing, I think, more and more onerous obligations of, on employers, and and you know, obviously in some of the states and uh, even in the state of Victoria where we are, uh, the implementation uh, concurrently of, of of industrial manslaughter laws. Um, do you see um, the parallels with the safety regime and and what's the response of, of the if can I say the big end of town or the employers that, that, that your organization represents to that to that yeah, issue? No, well, uh, I'll just correct the record we don't we overwhelmingly represent the small end of town um, out of the 300,000 businesses we have predominantly they're small and medium businesses and and they're the ones who I think we have a significant concern about a positive duty uh, all well and good for Victoria I, you know Victoria does love to do things differently, shall we say, but uh, our concern is that I don't think this is comparable with work health and safety law, and that's the problem we have. This isn't about management and reducing risk and making sure uh, you know, that this is a minimised to every extent possible. This is about eliminating sexual harassment, something that's out of completely out of the control of an employer to a large extent. You can't see who's a sexual harasser in your workplace. You can't automatically look at someone and think, oh, you're going to look at porn on your on your work computer screen. You, you cannot tell just by looking at someone. So you can do all of the training in the world. You can do have the most inclusive workplace and you might still have an instance of an individual who goes rogue and decides that they're going to perform a, a certain act in the workplace or say something inappropriate or, or hear a joke and then repeat it. So for us, this issue of elimination is a, of serious concern because we, we accept in the work health and safety space that we have responsibility where we have a level of control and where we can put in place steps to prevent things and, and minimise the risk to every extent possible. But this is a very different thing that's uh, that's being put forward. This is, as I said, elimination. And, and to us, that's um, deeply concerning, particularly considering there are already numerous avenues for people to go down when we have sexual harassment. There are, um, you know, a variety of overlapping different jurisdictions and, and avenues people have to go down when they um, they have an issue related to sexual harassment in the workplace. In fact, one of the recommendations was to try and get some better consistency um, and, and stop having all of these different overlapping um, requirements on business because it may be fine for, frankly, the top end of town who has HR advisors and has a legal counsel and, and can put all of that in place. But if you're if you're a small business owner, if you're running a cafe or if you're a pub owner, as Lucy said, where there is a high risk, but the risk is actually from someone who who's not even your employee, who you can't do training with, who you can't educate about your culture, who you can't um, inform about uh, what is the correct way to behave in, the, in, in your environment. That's a very difficult thing to completely eliminate. Yes, you can put up signage. Yes, you can you can make clear to customers that they must um, be respectful towards your staff members. But that doesn't mean it's not going to happen. 
And for us, that's the, the biggest concern um, about this idea that we have a positive duty to eliminate all of this. Obviously, that's a, a very, um, uh, you know, fantastic goal to have, but is it realistic in, in, in the workplace? We don't think so. Well, and I'm getting to Catherine to respond on that because I, I'm, I find it fascinating that on the one hand, you can have the onus um, uh, to, to prevent uh, as best as you possibly can the occurrence of, of uh, uh, in this case, sexual harassment. On the other hand, uh, a workplace health and safety incident. So, Catherine, how do you address in legislation or in practice the, the kind of dilemma that, that Tamsin's identified? Because She's right. Um, there, there, there are clearly rogue employees. There are rogue employee, employees now in business apparently um, and abhorrently um, when they know they shouldn't. So why should the employer bear the brunt of that? Yeah, look, um, I suppose two things. We know from the National Inquiry that there's still really high rates of of prevalence of sexual harassment. And we also know that people aren't reporting. So um, having a system that is really set up to require employees to drive change is really destined to fail. Um, and I think that's what this report recognises, that it really ought to shift to employers, but also regulators to be doing more to address the causes of sexual harassment and not relying on complainants. And there are so many barriers to complaining anyway. And in fact, many instances where employers, unfortunately, um, don't necessarily have best practice um, mechanisms in place for actually responding well to sexual harassment complaints or don't have the capability as Heather raised earlier. Now, the legislation is drafted, um, at least in Victoria, and I think what's being proposed federally in a way um, that does enable employers to, um, I guess, have a continuous improvement approach to this issue. So what the legislation talks about is a reasonable and proportionate um, set of measures to eliminate sexual harassment. Um, and reasonable and proportionate, I think, are important words there. And, and in addition to that, there's also, in determining whether a measure is reasonable and proportionate, there's a whole lot of factors that go into that, such as the size of the business, um, the nature and circumstance of the business, uh, their resources, uh, their priorities as well, uh, and the practicality and cost of the measures. And so in the guidance that we produce for employers, of course, it's going to be really different for a small business owner or a pub owner uh, than it will be for a large organisation. And we acknowledge that. And you have to be realistic, I think, when you're enforcing um, this kind of a provision. Um, but there's, uh, I think, a lot, a lot that employers can be doing um, within that framework, uh, which means they would be meeting the duty. Can I, can I just maybe add in there, Tony? I, I totally um, see where you're coming from, Catherine, but I, I just reflect upon that case you talked about earlier about Mount Arthur Cole, where there was pretty outrageous things said by that individual. He was reinstated by the Fair Work Commission after his workplace took action to, to say, well, that's not appropriate, um, we're terminating your employment. And then to have him reinstated by the commission and then told you've now got a positive duty to eliminate that individual from ever saying anything wrong. What steps is an employer reasonably expected to do in that instance? Simply say that person's never to use the whatever working system he was using to, to um, send this out to 100 employees. I, I think it is very difficult to match that with, with the way that employers are uh, being effectively treated when they do take the correct action, particularly when reinstatement is the primary remedy in circumstances where the Commission decides for whatever reason that it's unreasonable or if it's harsh based on, you know, in the case of Mount Arthur Cole because he had dependent children, not because what he did was wrong. So what we have is, is, is different systems. Uh, we've got a, a system regulating uh, sexual harassment or sex discrimination, and then we have a separate system regulating unfair dismissal and reinstatements, and they don't talk to each other, um, mm. and, they, and they address different issues. And I think Kate's report, well, in fact, Lucy, you might comment on this. The, the, the Commissioner's report actually you know, looks at the, the divergence of jurisdictions. And is there anything that comes out of that that, that, that was recommended? 
It, it does, Tony, and I, I think we have touched on it. So in, in within the Fair Work system, um, the report recommends that uh, sexual harassment is, is recognised as a valid uh, expressly recognised as a valid reason for dismissal, and it also um, uh, it, it recommends in the introduction of a um, a pro prohibition on sexual harassment within the Fair Work Act um, using the Sex Discrimination Act's definition of sexual harassment. And lastly, it recommends that sexual harassment is specifically called out as an example of. Um, of, uh, of serious misconduct. So, ho uh, you know, hopefully those sort of tweaks to the, to the Fair Work Act will influence how sexual harassment is perceived in the community by employers and also by the commissioners who are uh, handing down these decisions so we can get a, a bit more of, um, you know, an alignment with societal expectations now. Um, Tony, the other thing I think to mention is that the Sex Discrimination Commissioner has recommended having a council um, whereby all the different heads of jurisdictions can actually um, work together um, in order to uh, align better the, the jurisdictions so that you don't have confusion, duplication, um, and I guess, as Tamsin has pointed out, contradictory approaches and decisions. And I think that may also be a great avenue for best practice resources as well. Uh, so it really then wouldn't be up for an individual to have to navigate this complex system, but in fact the regulators work better together. I think that's a, a really good recommendation that hopefully will be taken up. I was, I was going to suggest perhaps that um, well, I, I think one of the great successes of uh, microeconomic reform in Australia has been the abolition of all of the various um, industrial relations commissions um, and, and we have now one federal body. I was going to suggest, Catherine, we might abolish the state uh, opportunity commissions, um, but no doubt so you couldn't possibly comment on that. I couldn't. So I won't ask that question. Hey, Heather, um, tell me, um, the, the positive duty, I mean, your clients that you're working with, you know, you're, you're dealing with presumably mostly clients who are heavily engaged and are probably already at best practice about to um, you know, effectively meet the bar in Victoria at the very least, which is um, the positive duty. Um, so do you see, do you see your practice and, and the training that you would be uh, conducting uh, and, and the work on psychological safety, is that going to change or what does that look like uh, with, with a positive duty? Well, hopefully what it means is that more organisations will engage in it um, because I, I think that historically um, we were largely called in by organisations who had an incident which landed up costing them a lot of money, um, an incident which came at cost to the business. And when I say cost, not only the penalties implied, you know, that resulted, but of course the fact that, um, you know, the lowered productivity and engagement by a whole lot of people who who were involved around the incident, because all the research shows it's never just the person, the victim, it's everybody else surrounding that victim who's affected as well. And very often in those cases, those organisations would want us to come in and do a quick fix as well. The quick fix being, you know, just implement some training, some forbidden curriculum training. I call it that forbidden curriculum. It's well known as that. Um, you know, and just let's put everyone through it as quickly as we can, face to face, not online, because we've had this big incident now. Um, and then we'll get back you know, to, to functioning as per usual. And I think there, you know, um, there's much more opportunity now with those organisations to be able to demonstrate that what they're doing is very, very far from positive duty, what would be regarded as and judged as positive duty, particularly if that organisation is at the big end of town, we work a lot with the middle and big end of town organisations, and that positive duty will certainly be looked at in a different way now, and that would not be enough. So I imagine that um, we will be having more conversations with organisations to take a more holistic approach and a long-term preventative approach. As I said, I think what's changed tremendously has been the impact of the Me Too movement. That has had a huge impact on the nature of the conversations that organisations have had with us because prior to that, the organisations used to talk always about the bad apple, the individual, you know, who they couldn't control, and irrespective of what they've done, behave this way. And all you have to do is deal with the bad apple. 
um, where now there's recognition that there was a lot that was going on that was invisible, that is now being visible. Many organizations come to us saying many more women are stepping up and talking about, it might not be sexual assault or harassment, but they are having a voice about the inappropriate and disrespectful behavior and the behavior that subjugates them in certain ways. That is coming up much more. So that has been a huge stimulus for change. Together with these changes by the commission, I think the combination will really move many more organizations to take a more holistic approach. You know, that bad apple example is, is a good one because in fact, um, you know, th that incident uh, can often become, you know, the, the stake in the ground um, for, for change. Yes. And you know, I know one of the questions we, we've had uh, sent in from uh, from one of the attendees on on, on the, the webinar today said, look, how do we how do we address this this conflict that we have? On the one hand, um, we've got climate uh, when we when there's an incident and we need to investigate that appropriately. We need to keep it confidential, and we need we can't disclose the name and identity of the the parties and. Yeah, that's that's exacerbated in a sense by the uh, uh, the whistleblower laws and uh, in the Corps Act, as well as uh, many businesses have got policies that are very strict on that. Understandably so. So how do we balance that process with you know communicating um, the example? Because the examples are are, are compelling, and uh, there's nothing quite like resonance when you're conducting training. Um, and I can say that for my business as well internally, um, that the example about the particular individual who behaved badly and paid a consequence. So how do you do? How do you deal with that? That 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 dilemma. It's a it's an extremely difficult one. Um, you know, an extremely difficult one. I, what I like is the very innovative methods that some organisations are using. They've developed an app where you can report. Um, so it, there is a, a register that's only open to certain individuals in the organization where complaints are reported. And um, it immediately will pick up when there is a repeat pattern in an individual. And then that gives the organization the confidence that in such a circumstance, they will, it will have, you know, lead to big penalties and they will talk about it in the organization because it's the very thing, it's not an isolated example. So there are mechanisms that can be used today with technology that doesn't expose everyone in the beginning, but if it becomes a pattern of behavior, you actually have the right to talk about that openly. But, but there's, there's a level of, um, if you like, an, an adversarial system and, and quite high levels of prescription about the way that employees address this. And Lucy, the report actually, you know, raises that, that, that question, doesn't it, that there is you know, maybe, you know, the process of conducting investigations is 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 maybe not overreached, that's my term, but may not be appropriate in all the circumstances. What, what does the report say about that? Uh, so I guess the report, you know, to address, we have, you know, only 17% of people complaining, which is obviously a problem. So the report looks at um, the way workplaces are, um, dealing with sexual harassment, um, uh, one of which being launching into a formal investigation. And the point the report makes is that, you know, there are some instances where for less serious complaints, it, it may not always be necessary to deal with um, a, a complaint by launching the formal investigation as, as you usually would. Um, and that, you know, there might be more informal methods to deal with sexual harassment, which might encourage those lower levels or uh, of behaviour to be reported. You know, it might be a, a colleague who's a friend making an inappropriate comment, which is offensive to someone, but they don't necessarily want it investigated, um, which I can appreciate. I think the danger of um, using informal mechanisms is that um, if there's no recording of these complaints and there's um it, it might lead to a situation where re repeat offenders or bad apples are, are allowed to uh continue behaving in that way in the workplace um or you know bigger issues aren't uncovered and dealt with so i think if things are dealt with informally there needs to be appropriate recording um 
for employers so that sort of issue can be identified before it has a real impact on culture. Thanks, um, Lucy. We've um, we, we've ticked over the hour, and I think I could go on talking to an hour to each of you, and I'm sure. Uh, there are many others who um, who would love to ask questions. We've 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 responded to a number of the questions that that uh, um, listeners have sent in already in the course of of, of today, and um, uh, I think we might wrap up uh, at, at this point and just say um, we're not going to solve the issues. Um, the report is, I think, just an exceptional um, volume to have as long as we take action on it. And uh, and uh, Tamsin, from Aki's point of view, I'm assuming that you will um, continue to, uh, uh, to to respond to, to proposals, some of the legislative proposals, and maybe just to finish with you, um, where do you see that happening in, in the context of the current COVID situation and, and the potential for, uh, for legislative reform getting into Parliament? Yeah, sure. Um, well, look, our view on this was always um, we were keen to have this socialised amongst the public to get the views of people, to get the views of more legal practitioners. Um, those who were involved, at least on our end in the reference group, were a pretty discreet um, number of people. So we were keen to have it to be discussed and to see what works and where, where are their problems in the recommendations and, and what is um, the perfect solution that we should be adopting. Um, so we're really glad that's happening and that it wasn't just kind of adopted um, as is um, without that further discussion. But I think it's fair to say this is perhaps not... Um, number one priority at the moment. We've got obviously the five working groups that are coming up um, that are going to tackle some of the, the headline issues like casuals, um, the complexity in awards and enterprise agreements, etc. So I think um, as a collective of businesses, that's probably where people need to see the most reform um, the soonest, which is disappointing for a topic like this that was so close to seeing some, um, some real um, uh, good efforts being being placed in it, but I think considering that we've got you know six hundred thousand odd people unemployed, that we need to get back into jobs and we need to be back um, and focusing on productivity. Unfortunately, um, issues like this might just have to wait a little bit longer, perhaps into twenty twenty one, to see um, some action, which in part is disappointing. But I think we've got to be realistic and understand that that the main priority at the moment is making sure people have got a job, um, because um, without that and without productivity ticking up. Um, we're in deep strife as a country, I think. So um, I think we've got to keep confidence up. We've got to keep moving. And, and this will be an issue we get to, just um, perhaps not as quickly as we all would have liked. And thanks, Tams. And, and actually, the, the last question, just for you, Heather. I mean, your your consultancy is very much on, on the training and leadership space. How is that happening now in, you know, with social distancing and and not not only that, but I think the focus that so many businesses have got internally at the moment just on on keeping their businesses afloat. Um, so how are you seeing uh, businesses trying to get this issue again, uh, you know, to the forefront and and try and make 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 strides forward? Well, I think interestingly, obviously, at the the the, the, the initial stage of COVID. Um, the focus of every business was on business continuity and on the actual physical safety of all the and health and well-being of all the employees. And everything else was put on hold, including any focus on broad-based focus on culture. But for us, what was fascinating is that the most progressive organizations were quick to understand that inclusion was more important than ever in times of crisis and uncertainty. For a number of reasons, you know, um, the emotional well-being of their people, keeping them connected, but also the demands for many businesses to reinvent and innovate and find new ways of doing things for business continuity, which meant they needed to be inclusive, leverage everybody's diversity of thought and keep them connected. So there's been a, a, a return of focus on inclusion to a system in these times, not specifically on the sexual harassment piece. I would agree with Tamsin that that in a way has been put on hold. It's a broader focus. You know, I'm just ensuring you have a culture which includes everyone. Um, and that addresses everybody's needs. And of course, for a lot of people, their needs have moved from the top of Maslow's hierarchy for self-actualization and fulfillment right down to the bottom, addressing people's basic physical and safety needs. Thanks, Heather. Um, everyone, thank you so much, um, Heather, Lucy, Tamsin and Catherine. I've really enjoyed that. Uh, for uh, everyone who's listened, uh, we'll make sure that we have access to the recording on our website. 
And Catherine, finally, can I accept your rebuke? Um, I did fail to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which I am uh, currently seated, which is the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. And that was very unfortunate, given that this is, in fact, the end of National Concil Reconciliation Week. So thank you for doing that for me. And um, I should say I'm very proud uh, that our firm has just completed its uh, Reconciliation Action Plan and published that on our website uh, this week. So. Uh, I'm proud of that and I'm very proud of our commitment to the um, Uluru Statement from the Heart, which of course is for constitutional recognition um, of Indigenous people. So um, with that, um, thanks so much everyone for attending. I hope you enjoyed the session and we look forward to catching up with you again soon. Thank you.